Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. All this week, NEPM is focusing on stories surrounding food insecurity for Hunger Awareness Week. And later in the show, we'll hear from Grace Cipollone from Students for Anti-Hunger who are looking to address issues of food insecurity within the student body at UMass Amherst as well as from the Food Bank of Western Mass's public policy manager, Laura Sylvester, who's helping students for anti-hunger to that end. Plus, a tiny musical breath of fresh air, no pun intended, with multidisciplinary artist Cornmo, who plays at Gateway City Arts tomorrow, November 17th. But with the 14th annual March for the Food Bank nearly upon us, we'll start with our regular Thursday guest, who is also a veteran of this literal movement to end hunger. Congressman Jim McGovern joins us from McGovern with McGovern every Thursday. But for those who haven't um, followed our travails, the congressman has been doing it for better than a decade. I've been also doing it for 14 years. It is a now 43-mile march from Springfield to Greenfield that happens this Monday and Tuesday to raise money and awareness for the Food Bank of Western Mass. When this started during the last redistricting in 2010, your then aide in your Northampton office, who is now my state rep, Natalie Blay was like, the congressman really cares about hunger issues, and he'd like to do this crazy event with you. And I thought, sure he would. That's what a politician would say. But sure enough, since then, and even since we expanded the march from 26 miles to 43 miles, you, congressman, have been doing the march. Why? I'm nuts. I know I, 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 I do it because, I mean, I believe in the cause, which is ending hunger. And we live in the richest country in the history of the world. And millions and millions and millions of people are hungry. And there are hungry people in our community. And they defy stereotype. It is not just people who are unhoused. It is people who are working, uh, trying to raise a family, uh, and who can't make ends meet and miss meals on a regular basis. It's senior citizens. It is veterans. I mean, I go right down the list. So we have a hunger problem. And uh, Congress needs to do more. The state needs to do more. But in the meantime, we all can do more, and, and that is why we do, uh, you know, we do this march. Uh, we raise money for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts, who do an excellent job of making sure that people in our community have access to good, nutritious food. So to those who are listening, join us, you know, even if it's for a mile or a quarter of a mile or whatever. Uh, and please be as generous as you possibly can, because this is about helping people in our community. Now... We just narrowly avoided another government shutdown, it looks like, kicking the can down the road a little bit more. What would a government shutdown, like we keep avoiding narrowly, mean for people who are relying on SNAP, the federal program, formerly food stamps, supplemental nutrition assistance program? What does it mean for folks on SNAP if the government shuts down or even if it comes close to shutting down like this over and over again? Yeah, I mean, the the, the danger for people on kind of these mandatory programs is that the people who actually administer them and process, you know, people's applications uh, don't get paid. So at some point they don't show up to work, and then all of a sudden things get delayed. A government shutdown is a stupid idea under any circumstances. And again, we just narrowly avoided one. It will take us through the holidays, you know. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, but we'll we'll be back uh, in this at this point debating again whether or not the government will shut down in January and in February. So it is really annoying that we, we're wasting so much time over these crazy tactics by the extreme right wing that are delaying us actually funding the government for a full year. And that's what people want. I don't care whether you're a liberal or a conservative or you're in the middle somewhere. I mean, I think people just want things to work and to go forward. 
And again, people who in a government shutdown, millions of people would lose their paychecks. All of a sudden, those people would become vulnerable and be looking to the food bank and other sources for food to put on the table for for their families. Is one of the major sticking points in response to what the right wing, the MAGA arm of the Republican Party wants having to do with food security? I mean, it seems like I know it's come up before. I know it'll come up again in the farm bill. But it is one of the major sticking points, isn't it, that keeps Republicans in particular in this case from funding the government fully because they don't want to fund programs like SNAP and WIC fully. Is that that one of the major sticking points? That is a sticking point. One of the good things in this continuing resolution is we extended the farm bill at current levels for a year. And the SNAP program is is in the farm bill. But look, the bottom line is we're in this situation because when Kevin McCarthy wanted to be speaker, he wanted it so badly, he gave away all of his power and he basically ceded control to some of the most extreme elements in the Republican conference. Any one person can call for the ouster of a speaker and have a vote as many times as they want. And so this small group that's unreasonable and not rational continues to threaten the current speaker as they did with Kevin McCarthy by saying, if you don't do everything we want, we will move to oust you. This is kind of the dilemma we're in. I mean, if this speaker were smart, he would say, let's change the rules back to where they were, that a majority of a of a caucus or a conference has to you know support the removal of a speaker, and you bring it to the floor. I mean, but the idea that just a handful of people, you know, are causing all this chaos is maddening. And, uh, and again, we, 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 we were supposed to be in session today, I'm going to go home earlier on an earlier plane today, but uh, the Republicans brought down their own rule, which is unheard of. They we voted against something that. that they put forward. Is that essentially what it comes down to? Yeah, yeah. So that's what that's what ended up happening. So we get to go home a little bit early. But it's this is it's, it's crazy what's going on here. We need people to be grown-ups and be adults and be rational and be reasonable and not throw temper tantrums or you know elbow somebody in the in the side. You're you're pathetic, man. You are so pathetic. But McCarthy denies hitting Burchett. Hey, did you elbow him? Okay, no, I did not elbow him. No, I would not elbow him. You're trying to threaten a, a fist fight in a committee hearing. That it's was like intense. Crazy. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Good thing Bernie Sanders was there, of all people, to break it up. I know. I love Bernie. You know, <laughs> yeah. Sit down. You're a senator. We're uh, speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, who we speak to every week on the fabulous 413 on NEPM, and uh, who is going to be coming the whole 43 miles from Springfield to Greenfield to raise money and awareness for the Food Bank of Western Mass. And the farm bill will, will be extended for another year. And this is a big part of what amounts to feeding people across the country. We spoke with Liz O'Gilvy from the Springfield Food Policy Council on the fabulous 413 earlier this week. And I, I guess she's consulting with you and others on on this farm bill. Yeah. What are the sticking points when it comes to making sure people have enough to eat in the farm bill? And what are the chances that something could be changed or negotiated with the farm bill in this coming year? Nothing will happen with the farm bill between now and, and Christmas. It'll be this will be something we'll do next year. But the, but the worry is that, that they got SNAP. I mean, they're trying to lower uh, the SNAP reimbursement rate. They're trying to make it more difficult for people uh, to be able to utilize SNAP. I mean, they are basically trying to undercut what the whole point of the program is, and that is to make sure that nobody goes 
hungry. What is the argument of, against SNAP? I've not heard a cogent argument from any Republican about what their problem is with SNAP. It's going to people who need it, usually for a short period of time, a lot of whom are disabled or right. veterans who they ostensibly love. And there seems to be little corruption. There's some, but very little compared to some other federal programs. What is possibly their argument? The money from SNAP goes to, to local markets, to local right. locations. It helps to bolster the economy. It goes right back into the economy. Is, have you heard a cogent argument? Or is there any there there, and from what you've heard from the other side of the aisle, that, they, that says why that this is always such a major sticking point? Yeah, no. I mean, part of it is is that they have a um, story about SNAP that doesn't represent reality. I mean, they tell people that uh, SNAP is a program that is abused, that uh, all, all people need to do is get a job. Well, the reality is the majority of people on SNAP actually work. So people people are working, they still need the benefit. Or that uh, people are on it forever. Well, the facts are that they're not. They're on it for a relatively short time. They talk about all this abuse that's going on. You know, people are buying lobster sales and filet mignon with SNAP. I mean, the, the benefit is on average of about a dollar sixty per person per meal. So show me where you can buy lobster tails for a dollar sixty or filet mignon. I mean, and then it, I'm it, going it, to that it, place. It, yeah, no, but it, it, but look, there's a stereotype that is just not based on reality. It's maddening that you have to deal with all the, kind of this fake rhetoric that they put out there about how this program is being uh, taken advantage of by people who really, you know, all they need to do is work. Again, the majority of people on the program work, but they don't earn enough and they can't put food on the table. Is the idea that you just let people go hungry? I mean, come on. I mean, the other thing is that a lot of the Republicans believe that, you know, espouse Christian values. And this seems like something Christians would want to be behind or would you would think would want to use their federal dollars to pay for. They seem to really want to support Israel with federal dollars for religious reasons, the underlying cause. Why not support the feeding of people like Christ would have? You know, you you would think that they would, but they don't for whatever reason. I mean, uh, that's kind of a sad reality that we're dealing with here. Uh, and there's this view out there that, well, charity can pick up the slack. Food banks can feed people. We don't need to feed people. Well, as Andrew Morehouse will tell us and others from the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts will tell us, they can't do everything. They're not a substitute for SNAP. They're not a substitute uh, for the nutrition programs like WIC and school um, free school meals. They're not a substitute for that. They, they supplement uh, what we're already doing uh, because what we're doing is not enough. So there's all these kind of fake arguments that are out there. Uh, again, they're all oftentimes based on bigotry and racism and stereotypes that are, are just ugly, uh, but they're not based on reality. And the fact is that in our community, in our community, there are countless people who are hungry. And you pass people all the time in supermarkets and you know, even at work who are struggling to put food on the table. Let's just get, let's just get this right. And by the way, if we get this right, at the end of the day, we save a boatload of money, too, and avoidable health care costs and lost productivity in the workplace and kids who can't learn. So if we get this right. I mean, we end up living up to our moral obligation to make sure that nobody goes hungry. But we also, and this is an argument for conservatives, we also will reduce spending on other things that we're spending on now because of the fact 
that hunger is such a major problem in this country. A year ago, Congressman McGovern, you were able to convince the White House, the Biden White House, after failing to convince the Obama White House to convene a conference on hunger, nutrition and health, the first in a generation since the Nixon administration. And that conference birthed so many programs like what became SNAP, WIC and more. It is a very contentious time in Congress and even within the other party in Congress with the Republican Party. Are there any glimmers of hope from the other side of the aisle that some of the ideas, wonderful ideas that I was able to hear because I was at that conference last year, could actually become a reality? Yeah, I've had some good conversations with some Republicans on key committees about making movement uh, forward on the the whole topic of food as medicine, on... uh, trying to find ways to increase reimbursement for school meals so that kids get more nutritious meals uh, in school, and also talking about providing infrastructure money so that schools can build kitchens uh, so that meals can be prepared on site. So there's there's some opening, some glimmers of hope, but it always comes down to the same old, same old, which is we want to cut, we want to cut, we want to cut, we want to cut. You know, that's our MO, so it doesn't matter how good the program is, we're going to cut it anyway. So, look, we, we, we need to change the reality here in Congress. I mean, elections do matter. That's part of it. In the meantime, we've got to do damage control, and we have to figure out whether we can forge relationships with Republicans who, you know, may not want to do as much as we want to do, but maybe get a little bit done. And so we're trying to work on that now. U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, the March for the Food Bank is this Monday and Tuesday. You have never had to go on this march, but immediately when this became your district, the Northampton area, you jumped onto it. When I realized and learned more about hunger issues, that the greatest need was in Springfield, where I now broadcast from every day, just a hop, skip, and a jump from Mason Square, where we begin, which is a food desert, you immediately uh, latched onto that as well and went the additional 17 miles, now 43 miles total over two days. I know your wife, Lisa, wishes I would move it back to one day. I've told her many times you can only do, you you don't have to do any of it, and you could certainly only do the one day if you I, wanted. I, 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 think, I think she's now advocating that you extend it for a week, because uh, <laughs> I think she's getting sick of me. <laughs> Tell me what your yeah. least favorite part of the march is first. So my, the, the least favorite part is if it's really cold. Yeah. Um, that, I don't... It uh, is miserable. You know, I don't look forward been, to. No. I know. Yeah, but we've been through rain and snow, and uh, it's so much nicer if it is a clear day. Yes. Uh, and it is not freezing cold. Uh, that's the thing I, I, I least like. I actually enjoy the, the walk for the most part until my legs start hurting. Yeah. One time but you the, fell into a gully. Was, that was fun. You, like, fell into I a did, dip. Yeah. and I broke it. Uh, yeah, and I, and I broke a toe. <laughs> Uh, so that was, uh, that was. I didn't know that. That was memorable. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know it either. And so uh, I went for a week oh feeling, having no feeling on my toe, and I went, and they told me that I. Well, I don't know if it broke. It sprained. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but it, it, the people are great. Have good conversations, and it's just beautiful. I mean, I, we we're lucky that we you know live in a place where there's you know it's such a beautiful. Uh, time to to be walking, uh, you know, especially the second day is much more scenic than the first day. Uh, but the first day is also very informative and and it's great. And, and again, I, and I and I, the people are wonderful, right? And the generosity of people in this community. I mean, we say this to each other all the time. It, it's just amazing. People actually not only turn out, but they they call in and they make generous donations, and it makes a real difference. You know, I, I, I met this guy, uh, Mike Rienzi, who owns Rienzi Italian Foods. I guess you can, they, they sell pasta sauce and pasta, and 
And he's from New York, and I was telling him about this, and he's going to send a truck with $20,000 worth of food. Wow, that's uh, great. To us under, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, like, where did, where did he come from, right? But it's wonderful. <laughs> he's just so, what a great idea. You're walking all this way with all these people, and i gotta, I got to help out. And so, you know, you, you see some of the best in people, and certainly some of the best in our community. We're very, we have a, we have a good community. It's a really, really good community. And uh, and people really do care about each other, and you know this is one of the ways to be able to uh, express that. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, and again, I I did the I searched the long term forecast. It looks like it's going to snow on Tuesday. It I, is. I, is it? I don't know. I don't know. Did look? you say I, that? You I I don't look. I, 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 I yeah, I looked yesterday. So may, hopefully today oh, is God. better. Oh uh, God. But in any event, we'll make it through. We'll yeah, make we'll make it through. It through. All right. Well, we, we really appreciate all your support on this, U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, and for um, be, making yourself available to our listeners uh, week in and week out. And uh, we can put politics aside. We'll get back to that for sure uh, very shortly. But to know that we can gather together as a community is an, an amazing thing. And we're glad to have you along with Andrew Morehouse from the Food Bank and Phil Corman from CISA and so many other community members who make this possible. I think Joe Kennedy's going to come out. He called me. He said, are you still doing this march? I said, yeah. Well, we love, come out. Want to be, yeah. we yeah. love to see him. We may, see, we may see some of our U.S. senators. We may see the governor herself as well. So uh, we're hoping. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it should be great Monday and Tuesday, this coming Monday and Tuesday. We'll see you bright and early at Mason Square at uh, 7 a.m. on Monday morning. All right. I'm looking forward to it. And to everybody listening, please help us out. Be as generous as you can, and, and if you have some time, join us for a little bit of the walk. It's a lot of fun. We'll see you Monday morning. Rest up. All the best. Thanks. Our Hunger Awareness Week coverage is supported by Ted and Barbara Hebert of Teddy Bear Pools and Spas. Later in the show, we'll hear about hunger on college campuses with Grace Cipollone from UMass Students. Wow. <laughs> for anti-hunger. And from the Food Bank's public policy manager, Laura Sylvester. But up next, we'll talk with... Cornmo, circus-adjacent glam rocker, heavy metal accordionist, and much, much more playing at Gateway City Arts tomorrow. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. It's about my 8th grade girlfriend, Angel. It's called Angel. Not many folks can say that they've played Schubert and heavy metal covers, but the next artist we're about to talk to can. Cornmo is the stage name of Jonathan Cunningham, whose career started in Texas and landed him eventually in Brooklyn. He's been <laughs> releasing albums since 2000 pretty consistently, all of them fantastic. And he's played with the band 357 Lover and joined the heavy metal tribute band Tragedy in 2012. And on November 17th, he'll be playing at Gateway City Arts along with local heroes, the Eurojets. Cornmo, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, so as far as I know, your main instrument is accordion, or at least in the early days when I saw you at the Iron Horse, that's the instrument that you wow. were playing. <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a long time ago. I saw you playing accordion, and accordion, you play a kind of across the board. How did you come to that instrument? I had just graduated high school, and uh, oh, it was it was a friend of mine. His mom worked at a homeless shelter, and she found it in the dumpster. <laughs> and she 
thought I might like it. And the, the keyboard side was broke and the button side worked and I did like it. So for years I had a, an accordion that only the button side worked, the keyboard side did not. Was it the first instrument that you started playing? No, I, uh, I'd been playing piano and my first year of college, I was working on composition degree. And yeah, the, the uh, accordion was a little bit secondary to me. And then I quit the music school, oddly embraced the broken accordion. Well, that composition degree, it still comes to bear. You wrote a musical about Frankenstein's lovers. Can we talk about your musical? That was my fiance, Angela. Before we were dating, she had the idea of doing a, a rock ballet. It was almost like a, a jukebox musical of my music with her dancing. The song seemed to fit the theme of Frankenstein's monster. It was a bio of all the different parts of Frankenstein's body. Like the torso was the love story of the person who owned the torso. And then there was a love story about the person who had the arm that Frankenstein acquired. And that, that was all Angela and her partner David that came up with that story. We brought my music on and my and Fish Some Lover played. And then I got some friends to be a choir. And we did it one night only at the Highland Ballroom. Luckily, I had another friend who came into from Philly He's like a cheerleader burlesque guy that he's always helping out everybody else. And Scott Johnson, he came in on a bus and shot the whole thing. So it's been documented and it's up on YouTube so you can watch the whole rock ballet. But yeah, it was one night only. We hope to do it again. I hope you do it again, too, because the the video is good and I'd love to see it in action. You started your musical career in Texas. What brought you to Brooklyn? I've been playing in Texas for a while. And then there was a sideshow circus that came through town in Dallas called the Bindlestiff Family Circus. And uh, the booking the booking guy for this club in Dallas said, hey, there, there's a circus. You should open for the circus. And uh, I did. And they needed a place to crash. So they crashed in my place. And then they invited me to come to Austin or the next time they came around. So I did. And then their, uh, their composer told me he was going to quit and that I should take his place. And then he said, also, you should move to Brooklyn. I mean, as far as origin stories go, that's pretty fantastic. I was invited to open up for the circus and then I stayed. It was it was a lot of fun. I toured with them a few times. They were they were a lot of fun to tour with. Do you still occasion? Do are they still operative? Do you still work with them sometimes? I haven't in a long time. Every once in a while, they they reach out. Yeah, they're still going strong. We're speaking with Cornmo, who's going to be performing at Gateway City Arts on November 17th. You also, in earlier days, played heavy metal. Did that influence your choice to join Tragedy, the heavy metal tribute to the Bee Gees and beyond band? Oh, yes. I was in a metal band in high school. And when I got to university, I went to see a band called Brave Combo. And they were a nuclear polka band from Denton. Our professor... And the men's chorus said we should go see this band. They were just playing at the school at the time. They played a bunch of songs, and then they said, now we're going to play a uh, somber version of the Exorcist theme. And I was and I was like, oh, there's, there's cooler stuff than the metal <laughs> stuff that I'm into. But nobody else, none of my student colleagues are reinforcing my love of hair metal. <laughs> Anyways, so I, yeah, I got it. That, that was like a big influence for Cornwell. And I started doing that and I started to uh, try to marry my love of rock and metal into a one man accordion show. And then tragedy came along and I was like, ah, it's like a, they, they made they made a spot for me in a thing that I've always wanted to do. 
Did you get to choose your own stage name? In Tragedy, you are Disco Mountain Man. No, there was another guy in Tragedy. He's not in Tragedy anymore, tragically. He said, you should, we should call you Disco Mountain Man. I had previously worked on another musical about Grizzly Adams, and it just seemed to fit. And I, I, couldn't even, I couldn't have thought of a better moniker. A large portion of your, at least solo work, would be considered novelty. Do you think that there's a sort of stigma to novelty music as a genre that should or shouldn't be there? How do you feel about your music being categorized in that way, in addition to being basically metal on accordion? You know, I, the guy that I replaced in the in the Bindlestuff Circus, his name's Skip Shirey, he described both of us as novelty with heart. And I, I think that was true. The songs are somewhat quirky and there's some sadness in there that you can't get away with with a wink and a nudge, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I love Dr. Demento. Mm-hmm. I love those songs. And I guess maybe I'm sort of, maybe I'm outsider music to novelty. I don't know. <laughs> I think it counts both ways. In a similar vein, do you feel like it's hard to translate the the intensity of metal into accordion or piano? when you play it because again like i think that your music is there's some softness to it but there's definitely metal at its roots you know when i put three good seven lover together it was flesh out the parts that were in my head that the solo wasn't covering so a lot of three good seven lover songs and cornmore songs are the same they're just they just sound completely different <laughs> uh, one's one's obviously just me playing accordion and the other is a full band filling out the blanks and i think the magic of me playing solo is I'm hoping that other people fill in that they're, they're, they're blanks themselves of what mm. they think that is in my head. I mean, you can sit back and just listen, but you can also like bring back my friend Skip. He would do the same and sometimes interrupt my set to uh, let me know what was in his head in front of the audience. Which is <laughs> <charming>. <laughs> I this now because your flight got canceled <laughs> to come back to the States from Europe. Where are you currently? Well, I was on vacation in Prague. We were flying out today and we were supposed to land at 425 and boarding for our connecting flight was at 430. Oh, no. And uh, <laughs> That's not yeah, how time I, works. <laughs> no, I don't. Lufthansa put that together and, uh, and the gates were pretty far apart and then our flight was delayed so we missed the flight things could be worse <laughs> a nice... and you're still getting back in time for the show cornmo's happening at gateway city arts on november 17th talk to me about playing schubert Schubert. I've never talked about my friend Skip so many times. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I was in uh, Edinburgh and I was playing with a circus cabaret called Planet Banana. They had a show at the Fringe in Edinburgh and I decided to go street perform during the Fringe and I blew up my voice oh. uh, street performing. 
I was overcompensating and not, I believe Skip was at, he was with another group there and he's like, that's so dumb. You should not be street performing. You can't, you can't ruin your voice. Anyways, I, I thought I had notes. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And I, I found a voice therapist in New York City uh, and um, I went to him. And he he told me I didn't need any surgery. He would just help me with getting my voice back in shape. He introduced those Italian songs and arias. And he said, these are just really therapeutic for your voice. Anytime you have problems with your voice, just sing these. So I did. And my voice got back. And then one day we were doing show tunes and he introduced a Schubert piece. And he said, I just want to try this out with you. So I sang it. And then the next week he brought out a new show tune. And I was like, I'm done with show tunes. I want to sing the Schubert again. <laughs> And he got really excited and he started to tell me, he's like, you know, I, I love these, the leader songs. And we started working and he told me about Dietrich Fischer Dieskau, who is the guy who does the Schubert songs. Like mm. everybody knows he's like the main guy who's mastered all the songs. This woman came out and she's, well, we, you know, he rented a studio apartment. That's where he ran out the, uh, the voice lessons. Mm -hmm. This woman came out during my lesson. She said, that sounds very nice. She went back in. And then he said, that's uh Fisher Dieskau's ex-wife. Oh. I was like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah. And this is uh, this is Fisher Dieskau's piano that we're, we're on. And uh, he gave it to her after they got divorced. And then he told me, he said, I, I wrote my dissertation on Fisher Dieskau. He was just an uber fan of Fisher Dieskau. And I think that's why we were in that apartment working <laughs> on Schubert. <laughs> it was fulfilling his dream. And so then I learned the Vincerisa song cycle. And then my teacher passed. He was about 90. I met up with Bill Schimmel who played on Tom Waits' Frank's Wild Years and Rain Dog and uh, did the Tango Project. So cool. And that was another milestone for me because Tom Waits was one of the other reasons that I got interested in with the Cornmo sound. Uh, oh, really? That, that influenced the Cornmo sound. He was doing a seminar about accompanying on the accordion. He mentioned Gerald Moore. And I said, hey, I love Fisher Dieskau. Gerald Moore was Fisher Dieskau's accompanist. So we just started, he just split up and he's like, well, we should do these songs together. We put out a band camp album of the two of us doing the Ventura as a song cycle. Again, like one of the cool things I think about you as an artist is just the general range and scope of things that you tackle. It's one of the reasons why we're encouraging people to head over to Gateway City Arts on November 17th to see what you're up to. You do have a, a large selection of fiction that's readable on your website. Do you feel like it's fundamentally different the way that you approach fiction as opposed to the way that you approach music? Yeah, I happened upon Steve Martin's Cruel Shoes a while back, and I love that book so much that I have three copies at home <laughs> in case I meet somebody that should read it. I enjoyed his writing so much. I, I think I just, it inspired me that I could write. I don't even know if they're really stories, but I, I write them as stories. Some of them are a paragraph long. They're fun to write. I try to write more in a story, but by the time I get to try to padding it, I'm like, oh, this is already done. <laughs> I was talking with somebody who was doing NaNoWriMo about the same problem. I have that same problem writing where I get to a point and I want it to be longer. Like I would like to be able to do like novel-y things, but usually I crap out somewhere around like four or five paragraphs. I'm like, oh yeah, no, this is done. It doesn't need any more. We're good. They get it. And I think some people appreciate when, you, when you're able to make a short story. A short, short story. I agree. It's, uh, I love reading short stories. <laughs> and I love reading like really, really short stories. You get the, you get the idea conveyed 
very quickly, and it's not lessened by the absence of more words. My last question for you, Cornvo, is there was a, a campaign yeah. to get your song Shine On Golden Warrior into the documentary about the wrestling family, the Von Erics. Was it successful? It was unsuccessful in, in that it didn't make it into the movie. Mm-hmm. It was successful that a roommate from Denton, who moved to Singapore, started a petition online to get it, try to get it in there. That was very that was very sweet. People that I know, people that I don't know, signed the petition. That was it was just neat that that people like rallied to uh, try to make a dream come true. That was cool enough. I have that. <laughs> I have that. And more, several albums, several singles, and several bands. Cornmo comes to Holyoke on November 17th. He'll be playing at Gateway City Arts. You can find tickets and more information at gatewaycityarts.com. Cornmo, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. Up Tragedy next. doing dancing queen. I know, I love that. <laughs> Heavy metal ABBA. Up next, addressing hunger on UMass campus with UMass student Grace Cipollone and the Food Bank's Laura Sylvester. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. It's Hunger Awareness Week here on NEPM, where we are exploring stories about hunger in our region to better understand the crisis, the impact it has on our community, and what's being done to combat it. Two folks combating hunger join us now. Grace Cipollone, still a junior at UMass? Still a junior. <laughs> UMass Amherst saying that she aspires to be an educated servant leader and a future healthcare professional. And Laura Sylvester, a public policy and public health professional working as the public policy manager for the Food Bank of Western Mass to improve the health of communities by helping to create and implement positive policy changes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Happy to be here. (laughs) Hunger in general is a largely invisible issue in large swaths of where we live in particular, uh, meaning the United States and Massachusetts specifically as well. Um, I think a lot of people may not know about the issues of hunger on college campuses. I think we have heard perhaps in the news a lot about public schools and people from kindergarten to grade 12, especially this year in Massachusetts, having free meals at school. That is something that I know Laura Sylvester and the Food Bank has been working on for a long time. But when it comes to college, we make people pay all of a sudden. Now education costs a lot of money when it was just free a year before. And that means that you may not have money for for other things like food. Can you, Laura, from the food bank, before we dig into what's going on at UMass, talk about the state of hunger as far as college campuses go, either regionally or nationally? Sure. So everybody knows the trope of college students eating ramen because that's all that they can afford. Well, it's really... Uh, true, it's not a joke, and it's something that we want to address. Um, Nationally and also in Massachusetts, about 37% of public college students are food insecure. Those numbers are even higher for students who are 
uh, black or Latinx or LGBTQ, and student parents actually have the highest rates of food insecurity. 53% of student parents are food insecure. Because they're making the sacrifice for themselves to try to get their kid through college? No, no, they, no are, they are in they college. are students themselves, oh, so and they have kids, kids. and so th- usually they're working two or three jobs in addition to trying to go to class mm. and raise their kids right. and pay for childcare, and they just have to make terrible choices of what they can spend their limited resources on. Mm-hmm. So, with these issues. Uh, Back in 2019, a group of anti-hunger advocates in Massachusetts came together so that those of us at the Food Bank of Western Mass, the Greater Boston Food Bank, Mass Law Reform Institute, Project Bread, and other anti-hunger advocates, uh, as well as a lot of people who work at uh, four- and two-year public universities, came together and formed the Hunger Free Campus uh, Coalition. And we have proposed legislation in Massachusetts that would create a uh, grant funding office at the Department of Higher Ed that would give money to public colleges and private colleges that um, serve uh, high-need students um, to address student hunger on campus. And so we are still trying to pass that bill, but we have been successful. Last year, we got $3.7 million in ARPA funds. That's the American Resource, American Rescue Plan Act COVID funds um, that were given to the Department of Higher Ed. So the DHE gave out $3.7 million of funding last year to schools, and another million dollars has been assigned this year, uh, and those grants are about to go up um, for schools to apply for. So, but while we're ch- while we're uh, trying to pass the bill, we have been getting some funding uh, eligible, and so there is some progress that's being made, but there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. That's Laura Sylvester, who handles the public policy for the Food Bank of Western Mass. If you've heard our conversations over the last couple of weeks, the Food Bank is a giant warehouse and distribution site for lots of food. But public f- policy and affecting public policy is a huge uh, portion of what the Food Bank of Western Mass does. We're also speaking with Grace Cipollone, who is a junior at UMass Amherst and is dealing with hunger on that campus. Grace, tell us what tipped you off to hunger and the situation on UMass's campus. Sure. So when I was a freshman, actually, I joined Alpha Phi Omega, which is our campus's community service group. And at the beginning of my membership, I learned that APO used to run our campus's food pantry prior to the start of COVID. It was unfortunate to find out, however, that that space was reclaimed post-COVID, and we have never been able to get a reprioritized space to make that another available resource for students. So since then, I've been trying to work with administrators and other students to just bring more of these resources back to campus, notably an on-campus pantry, but also swipe programs and a SNAP coordinator. There's a lot of stuff that we are currently working on. So currently there's no food pantry at at UMass? Not on campus. The Amherst Survival Center is a great resource for students to go to, but we really want to see something. Like, we don't want to see students having to go off campus to get these resources that they need. Although the Amherst Survival Center is there for you, and we had Lev Ben-Ezra, the executive director, (laughs) of that on last week. It's one of the stops on the march for the food bank. We'll be there on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. Um, What was, how many people were accessing this pantry prior to COVID when it was open, Grace? 
I know that it was very popular amongst grad students and a lot of undergraduate students as well. So it it's unfortunate that a lot of people lost that resource post-COVID. I was going to ask, do you see in the in the data that you have so far any stratification between like what undergrad needs are and what grad student needs are in terms of food insecurity? I think that would be a better question for Laura, definitely. Laura <laughs> Sylvester from the Food Bank? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, there's definitely a difference between food insecurity between undergraduate and graduate students. I think uh, undergrads are required to be on a food plan for the first two years. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, And then after that, they can live off campus. Um, And so... um, they uh, once they live off campus, then they often have to feed themselves, dealing with food insecurity. You know, if you're not working uh, a part-time job, it's hard to be able to afford that. Grad students are a whole other level of uh, challenge because they often come from other countries, which means that they are not eligible for SNAP benefits or other benefits like that. Um, they also uh, are not able to fly home necessarily during breaks, and uh, dining commons can close down during breaks. So it just makes it harder for them to access food in in multiple ways. So, and often uh, grad students come with family members, you know, they come with their spouses, they come with their kids, so it's more than just themselves that they're trying to feed. And so we really are, are, uh, a food pantry on campus would be an enormous help for students, um, both undergrad and grad. Grace Cibalone, who is a junior at UMass and is working to bring this food pantry back to campus, you mentioned before also trying to initiate a swipe program. And if you speak college lingo or you happen to have a kid who's in this first year of college, you might know <laughs> what, this, what a swipe program might have to do with. But if you're not familiar with that lingo, tell us about what a swipe program is and how that could address the issue of hunger on a campus like UMass's campus. Sure. So we definitely want to focus on like a lot of things like in terms of the campus pantry and a swipe program, which I'll get more into in a second, just to kind of keep like a holistic like overview on how food insecurity affects people in different ways. As far as the swipe program, the dining halls are a large part of the social like atmosphere at UMass Amherst. You want to hang out with your friends, you go grab a late night at one of the dining halls. Like it's awesome. Like, you know, the dining halls, some of them are open until midnight. Uh, they provide food from like, I think like six in the morning. But award-winning it, food at UMass. Award-winning, yes, number yes. one, Princeton Reviewed. Yeah. Uh, but students who cannot afford these plans or who can only afford limited plans, they lose out on a sense of that atmosphere and like in addition to this food being very nutritious. So a swipe program that we have been working on and pitching to dining and the dean of students has been a program that would enable students <laughs> to donate their extra like dining hall swipes to a sort of swipe bank. So students who either run out of swipes or who don't have them can access those swipes at any point and just get into the dining halls like as needed. Is that something that happens on other campuses? Is this, or is this kind of an innovative and complicated uh, system to, to donate your swipes to other people or to a bank? Oh, I didn't mean to take credit. We've been uh, talking to the, <laughs> speaking with the national nonprofit, specifically Rob Friedlander at Swipe Out Hunger. He's the director of advocacy over there, and he's definitely been helping us with strategizing like logistics for bringing it to UMass. But I believe Swipe Out Hunger exists in all 50 states like, and in Canada as well. Well, we're speaking with Grace Cipollone, who's working to swipe out hunger at UMass Amherst. And I guess maybe UMass Amherst is like the Dora, the explorer of campuses because they're like swipe or no swiping. 
He's, no? He, yeah. Um, and Laura Sylvester from the Food Bank of Western Mass, who deals with these policy issues on a national level, I think we should take a little break and we come should. back and talk more about what you're trying to do to fight hunger on UMass Campus, Grace, and how the Food Bank is assisting in that in the uh, lead up to the march for the Food Bank, which will go right through UMass Campus on Tuesday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And we are here speaking with Laura Sylvester, the public policy and public health professional working as the manager for public policy at the Food Bank of Western Mass. And Grace Cipollone, who is a UMass Amherst junior, who Khalees and I were educating uh, during the break on the history of the Pixies, who we're using <laughs> as bumper music uh, for your segment here, who were birthed at UMass. But we're here to talk about Grace's work uh, trying to initiate anti-hunger initiatives on UMass campus. Another thing that you're trying to do has to do with uh, increased SNAP enrollment on campus and perhaps bringing a market to campus that would take SNAP. Can you talk about where that's at, Grace? Sure, definitely. And I also want to give a shout out to the other student groups that we've been working with. In addition to Alpha Phi Omega, we would definitely not have been able to make the progress without a team of people. We've been working with some of the Student Government Association, the chair of the Undergraduate Services Committee, Colin Humphreys, and also Prisha Dial and Lily Plevin from the Center for Education Policy and Advocacy. But together, we're also trying to see like an increase in, in SNAP enrollment, of course. But Unfortunately, UMass doesn't currently have a SNAP coordinator to help make students aware of benefits that they may be eligible for. I know it's great that we have Luis from the Food Bank of Western Mass who comes in once, once a month to UMass to try to get more students enrolled into SNAP. But there are a lot of benefits that students can be accessing that they don't or that they just aren't aware about. And I know that Laura could also speak more to what those specific benefits may entail. Did that position exist before? Was it a casualty of COVID? I don't. I, I believe they're actively recruiting for like the first SNAP coordinator. Gotcha. Yeah. Laura, um, this is something that I know that you've worked on in the past with other college campuses in the area where a, a market that is enabled to access SNAP has been created. Even at, I was at the opening of the Holyoke Community College market that takes SNAP. How common is this on college campuses in our area and beyond? Well, Holyoke Community College was the first school in Massachusetts to open a SNAP-enabled market, and we are so proud of them for doing that, and um, it has been such a benefit to students there. The second one just opened up, uh, I think, at the beginning of last semester, and that's at Bridgewater State. So now we have two. Um, we want there to be a SNAP-enabled market in every community college, in every four-year school in the state, because we think that is just makes it so much easier for students to shop, um, especially if they don't have cars or transportation. If you can get your groceries on campus and then bring them back to wherever you live, it just makes it so much easier. Is some of the, the swiping initiative geared towards making sure that those SNAP points are also available at dining halls? I know that we have a member of the UMass administration, uh, Director Linda Zeigenbein for Campus Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is currently working on applying those SNAP benefits to the dining halls, but at the moment they are not currently eligible. 
And uh, is there, like, so there's a five college consortium, like, five colleges all working together. Only one of those colleges is public. Are the private institutions that have their own integrated, like, dining thing so they never really have to worry about this because it's built into your tuition, are they making any attempt to help out with this at all? No. Currently, this is just a, a public school initiative because we're asking for state-funded dollars to be gotcha. put towards it. So we can't. You have yeah. been trying to petition the administration to do this, though. Where is that standing? Are, are they open to these ideas? Is it easy to get these meetings? Grace Cipollone from UMass Junior? Uh, it feels a little difficult to make consistent progress, at least in terms of the dean of students, because I know we've had a lot of interim deans. So it feels like we're making progress with one person and then we have another turnover, mm -hmm. at least in terms of scheduling meetings. We know that these upper level administrators do tend to be busy. To their credit, though, they do take the time to meet with students. And overall, we've got like optimistic notes from them that they agree that more could be being done on campus. But it feels like those notes of optimism is sometimes where things start to trickle off. Yeah. So, and, and in that vein, you were mentioning before we actually went on air that UMass hasn't collected hard data on what hunger looks like and what food insecurity looks like on UMass campus. Do you expect to, to see those numbers in like before you leave <laughs> UMass? Um, I would love to be optimistic and say yes, but to be honest, rigorous research has come nowhere close to being completed. So even if it were to start, which we would love to see that happen, that is one of our biggest asks of the administration because we cannot effectively gauge how we are addressing student hunger without that data to back it up. Do you want to talk a little bit about the survey that SEPA uh, has put out? What is SEPA? SEPA. So SEPA is the Center for Education Policy, Policy and Advocacy. I don't believe the data has yet been analyzed, but it seems that they are the ones who, who are like conducting the research to see like how student uh, student food insecurity is like playing a role at UMass. So, you know, if you're like walking throughout the student union or like the campus center, like you'll look to your left and you'll see a flyer asking you to fill out a survey if you have experience with student food insecurity. So I think that those numbers are going to be really interesting. But just to speak a little bit to general like student attitudes on introducing more uh, anti-hunger initiatives. We uh, issued a petition at the uh, uh, during last semester to ask if students would be like receptive and they, if they think it would be helpful to open up like the a campus food pantry again, like you know one that would be more institutionally backed and overwhelming support. We collected over 500 signatures in a week. So That is Grace Cipollone, a junior at UMass, who's working to end campus hunger on that campus, as well as Laura Sylvester, who is the public policy manager for the Food Bank of Western Mass, working on Beacon Hill to make that happen. We're going to walk right through UMass campus again on the March for the Food Bank. We'll be there this coming Tuesday. Are the folks going to come out, the anti-hunger folks, while we our entourage goes through there? Grace? And those of us who have not left for Thanksgiving <laughs> break yet will be there at the That's march. That's why the UMass marching band never comes with me. They're all home. Well, thank you both so much for coming not in. this year. They're at the Macy's Day. No, that's actually next year, too. That's a long story. Anyway, <laughs> tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, a double dose of live music Friday. We'll welcome Holyoke's The Basement Cats playing Gateway City Arts on Saturday. And we'll try to squeeze six tubas from the 35 tuba ensemble Tuba Christmas. It's too many tubas. Into the studio tomorrow. They're playing next weekend in Berniston. <laughs> and we'll meet a pillar of love and justice in our community who is about to become Reverend Emeritus at First Churches in Northampton, the Rever Reverend Peter Ives. And to see that 80-year-old do the march for the food bank so many years is inspirational. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.